So, um, we come to this point in the book of Isaiah where the Lord begins to specifically address the issue of idolatry. He started chapter 40 by telling the prophet to comfort the people, where previously a lot of what the Lord had to say to them was about his judgment and about his wrath, about their sin and the punishment that was coming. And in 40, uh, he's shifting gears and bringing that forward. Now he addresses more directly uh, what it is that he has to say to them about the sin that is besetting them. Isaiah 41, verse 1, Keep silence before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, then let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. So this invitation that the Lord is giving is not one that is especially welcoming or inviting. It's the idea of the Lord, and he's going to get very specific about this later in the chapter, of we need to come together and really examine what it is that you're doing. We need to really examine. You know, when he says, let the people renew their strength, the idea is, okay, let's let the unbelievers show us what their strength is. Let's let the you know let those that have fallen into idolatry come forward and make their presentation. That's why he says, let us come near together for judgment. So as you move forward, he begins to unfold this idea of what it is he's saying specifically to them. You know, who raised up one from the east? Who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings? Who gave them as the dust to his sword or as driven stubble to his bow? Now, the commentators are basically divided three ways at this point. I know who is he addressing? Who is Isaiah? Who is the Lord addressing through Isaiah at this point? And the three basic opinions are that it's talking about Jesus Christ. This is uh, some kind of prophecy about Jesus, you know, who, who raised up one from the east, right, just called to his feet, you know, gave the nations before him. The second opinion is that we're talking about Cyrus, and the Lord is specifically going to address Cyrus. And, and of course, you know, what's most remarkable is the Lord is naming Cyrus as his servant later, 150 years before he's even born. So it's, you know, it's a remarkable passage, sort of indeterminate. The third opinion is that the Lord here is talking about Abraham. And, you know, there are different ways of looking at it. And I think that as far as definitively you know, saying that this is, you know, Cyrus or Jesus Christ or Abraham is difficult. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying that 
the um, phraseology shifts around in such a way that uh, for us to know the mind of God and what he you know, was trying to say here would be difficult to uh, really put our finger on. I think one of the things you know, that stands out, he who performed and has done it, verse 4, I'm skipping over 3, calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. So, you know, there's a pretty strong indication that here we're more talking about Jesus Christ or the Lord in this setting. And uh, it certainly um, puts things in a perspective. You're going to find good commentators that have different opinions. But I think that it's safe for us uh, to go through this, sort of read it as God expressing himself in that way. So back to two, and I'll read through to four uh, without stop. Who raised up one from the east, who in righteousness called him to his feet, who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings, who gave them as the dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow, who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet, who has performed and done it, calling generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. So, however it unfolds, Cyrus, Abraham, Jesus Christ, here, what we can see is that the Lord is more talking about his capability of causing things to happen at his word. If he declares a thing to be so, uh, there's not going to be any arguing with him. There's not going to be any change of course. You know, you look at the UN and the way that they have so defiantly, and I'm not, I'm not going to get uh, political in this discussion, but uh, you know, to purposely build their world headquarters so that it resembles the half-constructed. Tower of Babylon to make their uh, world motto together we can. You know, when the Lord, you know, in Genesis recognizes that it is in the unity of mankind that they're going to do just such great evil and atrocity, so he separates them by their languages, and the Tower of Babel halts in its building. And now what? You know, one of the major pushes of the UN is to to build universal translators so that you can go into any country and wearing the headphones uh, as people speak, you'll hear your own language. And then as you speak in the microphone, the speaker will project, project in their language what you're saying, the idea of overcoming language barriers you know neat interesting concept but when you do anything in defiance of god there's a price to pay and uh, you know the lord here is saying look i i am the one who is calling these nations into being you know more specifically uh you know we we saw isaiah who was rebuking king hezekiah because you know he was going to die and he pleads uh, you know, the Lord give him more years. The sundial turns back 10 degrees. He's granted 15 more years of life. And then what's the next thing occur? 
you know, the leaders of this seemingly insignificant tribe show up and he shows them all the treasuries of Israel. And they're going to be, in, you know, the future world power. They're, they're at the moment, uh, the leaders of a little known group, the Babylonians. Within, you know, a hundred years, they're going to be the conquering world power. They're going to remember the treasuries of Israel and they're going to come up and ransack the place, you know, as a result. So God raises up the nations. He, you know, makes the, you know, the kings that rule over other kings drives people away as though they are stubble and makes this closing statement in this short section. I, the Lord, am the first and with the last I am he. Now, I just want to chase a rabbit trail here for a moment. Um, I was praying with a young man uh, last night uh, about salvation, and I forewarned him, you know, now that you're making this decision and you're surrendering your life to Christ, you can guarantee that you're going to have, you know, one of three things try to derail you. Uh, the first of which is relationships. You know, suddenly the girl of your dreams is in the picture and you forget all about your relationship with the Lord, you know, or the guy. And, you know, it's over. And that's one of the most common things. The second thing that so often happens to people who have newly surrendered their lives to Christ or made new levels of commitment to the Lord is suddenly there's a work opportunity, you know, extra hours at work, more pay, bigger job, things that are going to distract you from keeping the commitment that you've made to the Lord. If neither one of those are you susceptible to, then, you know, someone will show up on your doorstep and want to give you a magazine, you know, the Awake or Watchtower so that they can be better informed, the Jehovah's Witnesses, or, you know, very polite young gentlemen, crisply dressed in black and white with their badge, declaring how they're an elder in the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. And now you're hanging out with Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses and being horribly confused about what you believe and steered off track from following the truth of God's Word. With that, this statement. You'll notice, if you're looking at your Bible, in verse 4, it says, I, the Lord, all capitals, right? That's what we would call the tetragrammation, the name of God, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, God the Father, uh, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all known as Yahweh, okay? This is the point I want to dwell on. So if you can put your bookmark there and turn with me to Revelation chapter 22, there is this defining statement. You can see here, this is God the Father, the Old Testament, we might say Jehovah in Isaiah chapter 41 saying, I, the Lord, am the first and the last. You come to Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, 
And here Jesus Christ is speaking, and he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, again, Revelation 22, verse 13, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Well, who's the first and the last? Jesus or God the Father, Yahweh? The answer is yes. Both of them are because they are one and the same. People say, oh, this Trinity thing has always confused me. Well, look, lots of people have set out to explain it. And while some of them sound good, they fall short uh, because it is beyond our capacity to truly understand. Now, uh, the best illustration for me, as far as my understanding, so that when I think about it and when I explain it, I understand it best. And when I've explained it this way, people tend to grasp it pretty well, is just Will Cass's illustration and explanation. It is not complete by any stretch of the imagination. So it goes like this. God creates Adam and Eve. When he does so, he says that he's creating them in his image. Now, from there, often preachers will say, we, created in God's image, are triune, which is mostly true uh, when we say that we're body, soul, and spirit. Okay, uh, that's an accurate enough understanding. But, but you have to, I have to, go a little further with this understanding because when we say in the image of God and to say body, soul, and spirit is the same as Father, Son, and Spirit, I disagree. That, that's way too big. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is way too big to compare it to body, soul, and spirit. So this is how I liken it that way. Um, I have a, a mirror in my office so that just before I come out here, I can look and make sure that I don't have, you know, too much junk on my face and don't look completely ridiculous. Um, plus, my spouse helps with that quite a bit. Um, the mirror is an image of me. And if you wanted to understand me, you could look and study the image that is in the mirror, and I could turn, and you could get all kinds of different information from the mirror about me. If you never were able to lay eyes on me, but the mirror was positioned so that you could see me, you could get a lot of information about me from the mirror, but the image on the mirror is just that. It's just a reflection. It's just an image of me. We, body, soul, and spirit, are merely a reflection. We reflect God in some way. We are an image of God. So please don't try to take body, soul, and spirit and try to say, okay, so like Jesus is the body and what? Uh, God the Father is the soul and therefore that leaves us with the Holy Spirit, so that must be the spirit. That's a, a far cry from what God is, okay? Uh, the reflection in humanity, the reflection in his creation, all of the different ways that we can assess the character and person 
of God, they do. They lend us great understandings. And I love to hear different illustrations in ways that people help us try to understand the Trinity. It comes down to this. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, if you try to understand the Trinity, you could go mad. If you try to deny the Trinity, your salvation is under threat. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. They are one in the same, and trying to wrap our little pea brain around that is more than we can handle. You know, I just accept it. They are all God. Here, God the Father is saying, I the Lord am the first and the last. And then in Revelation 22, God the Son is saying, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. As I said, which one is it? God the Father or God the Son? The answer is yes. Yes, they are God. So I said rabbit trail. 41 verse 5 back in Isaiah, the coastlands saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, be of good cheer. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smooths with a hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, It is ready for the soldering. Then he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. So this is the Lord starting the process out, saying, Show us what your strength is. Let's make a judgment over this matter. And then he's putting the accusation out of, You've all helped one another in this idolatry. As one has taken his portion of the fabricating and the behavior, then another one has encouraged him in it. Uh, there's some modern application when we get further along, but for the nation of Israel, God is saying, you can't point the finger at somebody else and say, I didn't make idols. Okay. Did you buy any of them? That's what the Lord is saying. Were you supporting the people who did? Were you encouraging this process within the nation? Or were you confronting it? Because if you were confronting it, you're, you're the only ones that are without excuse. If you were even turning a blind eye to this, God is saying, then you bear responsibility in it. Because the whole nation has gone this direction. Look at verse 8. But you, Israel, are my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen. Pause there for a moment. What a remarkable statement on God's part, right? Because, you know, any of us that have studied at length know that's one person. Jacob is Israel. Israel is Jacob. It's the same name for the same man. You know, his birth name was his given character. You know, Jacob could be translated, you know, trickster, scoundrel, you know, someone who comes from behind and trips people by catching their heel or kicking their foot, causing them to stumble. What a, what a terrible way to be known. You know, uh, much like we see Native Americans naming uh, their children, you know, my wife's grandfather was 
pure-blooded Abenaki and, you know, that whole Native American culture of, you know, naming them, you know, spotted wolf or having some long explanation to, you know, circumstances surrounding their birth. Or Jacob, when he was born, grabbed his brother's heel as he came out of the womb. His twin brother came out first and he was hanging on to his brother's foot. And they named him Heel Catcher. And that, that became an insultive understanding of his personality as he grew. You're, you're the one who comes from behind and grabs at other people. And so he bore that character and title until the conflict between himself and the Lord grew to the point of confrontation and physical wrestling. And when he said, I will not let go of you there as he was physically wrestling with God. Uh, the, the angel of the Lord touched his hip socket and permanently crippled him and changed his name in the process to Israel, which means governed by God. Very gracious, very wonderful name to go from scoundrel to governed by God. But you're going to walk with a limp for the remainder of your days. Any of you that know that historic account, very next verses, he's meeting his brother Esau, who, when they saw one another last, had said, I ever see you again, I'm going to kill you. Okay, if you parted company with somebody, and their last words to you were, if I ever see you again, I'm going to kill you. Now you're being forced into seeing them again. What are you going to be ready to do at any given moment as you come to that encounter? Run for your life. But not if you've just been crippled. Hip socket out of joint. No running anymore. You've got to be governed by God if you're going to be forced into those kinds of circumstances. Now he's speaking to a whole nation, saying, but you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob. You, governed by God, are my servant, scoundrel. How interesting. How interesting that God addresses them this way as he's dealing with their idolatry. Are you truly governed? Are you truly governed by God, scoundrel? <laughs> God is so clever. You, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. Yet his grace, right? I've chosen you, scoundrel. I love that. I love God's character. Just like you, you know, have you ever have you ever grabbed a hold of one of your kids or your grandkids, right, as they're being a scoundrel and said with loving affection through your gritted teeth, you little scoundrel. And maybe you've even corrected them. Corrected them as you loved them. Do, do you understand the grace of God in your life? Do you understand how he's chosen you? The descendants of Abraham, my friend, scoundrel. <laughs> you who I've taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, are my said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you away. Fear not, 
for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You think about how God is starting out saying, okay, you're all engaged in idolatry. Then why don't you strengthen yourself in that idolatry? And then let's take a judgment between you and me. And don't deceive yourself because I know you've all participated in this. You've all encouraged one another in this, you scoundrels, my children who I've chosen from the ends of the earth. How gracious that God is talking to them this way. Right? Because he could just like call down the fire and whack a big puff of smoke goes up and there's nothing left. And he looks around and says, now, who can I start over with? Because that's that's actually been in his heart, right? As he was there in the wilderness with Moses, and he, he said to Moses, you know what? Enough is enough. I'm just going to wipe them all out, and we'll just start over with you. Now, I don't know about you, but if God said that to me, I would probably say something like, it's about time. <laughs> you are truly a wise God, you know. Moses does it. He falls on his face, and he pleads on behalf because... He is the most humble man on all the earth. And he calls the Lord back to his promises. And it says so strangely that God repented. doesn't mean that he was in sin. When we repent, it's because we were in sin. God stopped the action he was about to take, turned around 180 degrees and went the opposite direction. He was truly going to smoke the nation of Israel right there on the spot. And Moses pleaded on their behalf, and he stopped. How gracious. Behold, all those who are incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing, and those who strive with you shall perish. Now, if we're talking about the nation of Israel, which by here, you know, Abraham and the way we've flowed into it, I, I think that at least in this tone we are. Think about what's going on in the world right now regarding Israel. You know, the hatred that is mounting, you know, you look at Vladimir Putin and his plans and all that's turning in Syria, you know, you read again the scripture saying that Damascus will fall and be uninhabited, uninhabitable, and uh, we still have to see Ezekiel 38 accomplished where all the nations surrounding come in against Israel and the fire that falls from the sky destroys the enemies of Israel. Remarkable things mounting up right now against Israel. Here, one more time, the Lord saying, everyone that's against you is going to be ashamed. I'm going to deal with them. I'm going to, as he's simultaneously dealing with them on his own, God is correcting them in the process. You know, this whole uh, behavior. They're going to be ashamed, disgraced. They shall be as nothing. And those who strive with you shall perish. You shall seek them and not find them. Those who contended with you, those who war against you shall be as nothing, as a non-existent thing. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, fear not. I will help you. What a What a remarkable statement, in my opinion, on the part of God, because honestly, that's what we contend with all the time, is fear. We, we Whether we become outright 
disturbed within our heart and our mind or not, circumstances compel us to make decisions that are contrary to God. It's fear. It's fear. We make decisions, we make choices, we pursue avenues in our life, you know, as he's addressing the idolatry of this nation. The whole point is they haven't trusted him. And right now God is saying, uh, in the midst of this whole thing, you know, you've been afraid, now you're turning to idols. I'm telling you, I'm here to uphold you. Do you hear God pleading with humanity, saying, put that thing down. Stop with that behavior. Turn away from that sinfulness. Just trust me. You know, you're the one that's going to be ashamed, God is saying to them. When you see my hand of deliverance and, and then you've got an idol in your hand, when God has delivered you, and you've got an idol in your hand that's going to make you feel really foolish. Wow. You know, the the thoughts that God is pleading with his children and just saying, come to me. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to, you know, hold your right hand, saying to you, fear not, I will help you. Um, some of you know uh, my granddaughter, uh, Elizabeth. She is a fiery little redhead. And, uh, you know, when I take her places and we're holding hands and walking together, um, she's not really holding my hand. I'm holding hers. Because you don't know what's going to happen. She will make a decision and bolt and blast out into I'm hanging on to her all the time. She may have that perception like I'm holding, she calls me Papa. I, I'm holding Papa's hand. It's, it's a lot less to do with Ellie holding my hand as it is I'm holding on to her. Guiding, directing, comforting, providing, securing, you know. The closer I come, to unpredictable circumstances, the more I'm holding on. You know, I'm tightening the grip. I get a little deeper. I've raised three daughters, right? They're all grown and have, you know, two of them have children. And, and I learned long ago, I, I have to get, like when they're holding your hand, you have to get like your thumb down past their thumb. You're not just holding, you know, their fingers. You got, you got to get your thumb like inside the wrist, you know, closer you get to the street, the more you're going to actually be like hanging on to the arm. <laughs> this is how it is with God, you know, for I, the Lord, your God will hold your right hand saying to you, fear not, I will help you as he's addressing their idolatry. Wow. I mean, if it was us, right, if we were God, we would have smoked anybody. We would have just blown them up. We would have called down, right? You know, the sons of thunder. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven? You know, we we would have behaved in a sinful way. Uh, Chuck Smith years ago, I can remember hearing him uh, say, it's only the imperfect that is impatient with the imperfect. 
The perfect God is never impatient with us. Never impatient with us. He corrects us, right? He's correcting them here. He's not turning a blind eye, winking at their sin. He's correcting them. But how graciously he is correcting them in this. Boy, there's a lot to learn here for us, right? Because when we correct people, are we this gracious? My wife's looking at me right now, shaking her head. <laughs> She's not. I'm just, I have to be honest. You know, in our sinfulness, in my sinfulness, there's a lot to learn from our Heavenly Father. Fear not, verse 14, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. That threshing sledge was an instrument it was designed a few different ways, but essentially large, long stick had a couple links of chain or really strong leather attached to a shorter section of stick, which they would hand drill holes through and put spikes out through in neat rows so that like on three sides, so no matter what end, if they were holding that, they would pile their grain and they would hold the stick and they would whip that other end around and slam it into the grain and they would just thrash the ripened kernels of wheat out of the stalks of grain, the threshing sledge. You know, the, the whipping action of that, they could get a lot of leverage and just pound the grain so that it was free, right? The chaff is always the symbol like in Psalm of the useless sinful thing that needs to be burned up. You want to get the valuable portion out of any given thing, the grain. You want to release the fruitfulness and get rid of the sinfulness. The waste needs to go and the fruitfulness needs to stay. You know, God here, you know, you worm, you know, I am your redeemer. I'll make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them. And that was that process when they were done of uh, taking big like pitchforks and gathering up bundles of the uh, wheat and the chaff and flinging it really high into the air. It was better on a windy day on the top of a hill where all of the chaff would be blown off to the side, and the heavy kernels of the wheat would fall straight to the ground. So they would separate the wheat from the chaff by winnowing. So I'm going to make you into one who winnows out, who threshes out. You know, the wind shall carry them away. How gracious that now the focus has shifted to them, others. You know, not Israel, not Jacob. The whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel, which is only Jesus. The Holy One of Israel. Yes, God, but Jesus is the Holy One of Israel. He's also the Redeemer. So back when the Lord is saying, says the Lord and your Redeemer, right? You come to Jesus and what is his name? Yeshua. Yahweh's salvation. Yahweh's Redeemer. He is the salvation. It's a wonderful 
characteristic explanation here of how God is going to refine them as a people and cause it to be that they would actually work as the purifying process. Now, within the discussion of idolatry, this is sort of a self-purifying explanation of, I'm going to change you. I'm going to give you the sharp teeth of the threshing sledge and make you this winnowing process so that we'll scatter them. So now we're talking about the idols. You shall rejoice in the Lord and the glory in the Holy One of Israel. 41.17 The poor and needy seek water. There is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsaken or yeah, forsake them. That uh, spiritual idea, yes, thirst and physical provision. Uh, there were droughts that occurred and rain that was withhold, but more the woman at the well. You know, not only will I give you living water, right? If you'll come to me, you who thirst, I'll give you living water. Um, you know, I hope we understand that the living water is the idea of flowing water. Many times in Israel, wells that they drew water from were uh, just uh, gathering wells. They were what we might call a cistern. So even underground wells uh, were, were simply locations where the underground bedrock allowed you know, rainwater and otherwise to flow down into a low point and fill up a well. So, you know, they would deplete that over time. They're drawing the water out. And honestly, in the end, it's not that healthy. It's, it's kept fairly well clean because it's underground and not a lot of stuff is getting into it. And the gravel bed has filtered it. But they're pulling up stagnant water. This isn't spring fed. And that's what, that's what Jesus is saying about you're drawing from a, this well, you know, that, that is a cistern. It's a storage container. I'm going to give you access to living water, that which flows up continuously, that which is fresh continuously, that you don't have to be concerned about has something contaminated a well. You know, you, you read of those occasions, right, uh, where they dug wells, and then, like in the case of, Rebecca, right? The well is covered. And that's so things don't fall in it. You know, if the sheep knows where the water is, they're dumb enough to come there and try to get it. And now they're going to fall down in the well and drown in the well and then pollute the well with their decomposing body. So, you know, it's a dangerous thing to have an open well. But if you've got living water, it just wells up and pours out. You don't have that concern. It's always fresh, and so it should be with us. And there's something to say there about the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we see the apostles asking after they've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, asking later to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. A renewing. You need the constant inflowing. You need the constant filling up. You need that refilling of the Holy Spirit. It does flush things out. Have you tell me you have not gotten stagnant in your relationship with the Lord from time to time? He's got to flush things out. He's got to have that freedom to purge things out. That was one of the first lessons I learned as a young Christian. The pastor that was 
discipling me and I would just go and pull my hair out in front of them about, I'm just so frustrated. I want to be more mature than this. And I just still struggling with all of this stupidity. And uh, we were standing in his kitchen and he had a, a discarded iced coffee there that his wife had bought early in the day and had like two sips off. I know no one else does that, but you know, and it sat there and never got drank. And he picked that up and he set it in the sink and he moved the faucet over it and he just turned on the sink a trickle into that. And then he started talking to me about this is what you need to do with the word of God in your life. You need to get this constant flow happening in your life. And like while we're standing there, it had already reached the top and it was overflowing and already it's getting clearer and just in a few minutes while we're talking, it's completely displaced the black coffee and it's just clear water. And he said, that's what you need is the constant inflow of the Holy Spirit. You need the constant inflow of God's word. You, know, you need the constant inflow of worship and fellowship. Acts 2.42. You know, they continued steadfastly, Right? Do we do we all truly understand the definition of steadfastly without wavering, right? We need the steadfast aspects of continually being in fellowship, continually being in the word, continually worshiping the Lord, continually sharing our faith. That needs to be flowing into our lives, that it would displace the things, right? Because leave the water, just shut it off, right? Are you going to come back a week later? All the coffee was washed out of the cup. You were there for the illustration. You know, my friend shut the sink off. And you left the house and came back a week later, and there sits that same cup of coffee. That's been washed out with all that water. Are you going to pick that cup up and drink it? I think not. I hope not. You know, you'll suffer Montezuma's revenge. <laughs> because the bacterial content in that water will grow and multiply. And if you let it invade your intestinal tract, you're going to have to suffer the consequences. Fresh water, living water constantly in your life has to flow in has to flow in got to have an outlet too right otherwise you end up being the dead sea it just flows in there's no outlet in the dead sea right and the mineral content just continues to cook down <laughs> more and more salinated all the time you know this saltiness needs to be refreshed. As we see later, the Dead Sea will be healed by the waters that flow out from underneath the temple, from the throne of God. So, you have this explanation here. They have this needy who seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in desolate heights, the fountains in the midst of the valley, I will make the wilderness a pool of water. and dry land, springs of water, I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree. I will set in the desert 
the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created. And I'll tell you, um, you know, what I got to see of Israel, the soil there is incredibly rich. It's just, I mean, I, you know, I, I thought of it as desert and it is dry and arid, but where they till, my goodness, you know, rocky land for sure. You know, Middle Eastern desert, yeah, but it's no wonder they're the world's third largest producer of food. That's remarkable. As a nation, okay, behind uh, America and then Russia, who are like massive sections of continents, Israel is the third largest producer of food in the world. Okay, uh, they have, as a country, retrofit two 747s, uh, completely stripped out. They are cargo planes, and daily they fly flights to Holland where both of those planes are filled with flowers every single day because Holland is the land of flowers, so they need to have lots of flowers to sell all the time, and they don't produce enough, enough flowers to sell, so Israel supplies them. They fly two 747 loads, just completely full, top to bottom, flowers. So have to check the allergen content for, you know, certain pilots that fly or just Claritin. Sarah, Sarah could not get the job. She was, you know, not, not even allowed. So, you know, it's, you know, the fruitfulness that's currently there doesn't even compare to what we're going to. Uh, to see what well, five hundred uh, six hundred fifty-eight um, billion dollars was uh, America's uh, military spending budget uh, a couple of years ago. Um, so that was larger than the next thirteen countries combined. So massive, massive financial spending, and in the millennial kingdom, they will pound their swords into plowshares. So all of that technology and money and wealth and intelligence put into agriculture, just a jet-propelled tractors, I don't know how that'll work out. But I'm just saying, it, you know, the fruitfulness that we see in Israel right now, worldwide, what a remarkable thing it will be to see the fruitfulness, you know, as God is describing here. You know, I'm going to create this time where... The, there will be a fruitfulness everywhere. There won't be this arid, dry desolation. There's going to be trees and growth and fruitfulness. You know, this holy one of Israel has created it. And then, look, this is a verse I've quoted to us endlessly. Many, 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 many times. It's one of my favorites in regard to the authority of God's word. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 21. God hangs all of his credentials on prophecy right here. God, God just says, look, let's put an end to the discussions about who's God and who's not God. Let's see who can tell us anything about the future or the past. Quite interesting that he includes the past in that. Present your case, right? We started out. This was going to be a court trial. 
Like, let's get together. Everybody come, strengthen yourself in your position. You know, rehearse your lines, put your opening and your closing arguments together. Let's now, now present your case. Ready? Go ahead. Present your case. God says, bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, what they were that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us things to come. Show the things. This is so interesting. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. Yes, do good or do evil that we may be dismayed and see it together. Do it right in front of us. Indeed, you are nothing, and your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. Anyone who chooses idols, God is saying, is an absolute abomination. That's an unfortunate way that we uh, look at ourselves. I'm trying to look something up here. Um, the, you know, we consider ourselves so wise in, in so many, uh, situations, you know, the, the, uh, statements that Paul is making there in Romans about how, um, you know, declaring ourselves wise, we've become fools. Okay. Um, specifically in declaring something from the past for us. Uh, dwelling on that because he talks about the future tell us about the future and the things that are going to take place and then he you know tell us you know the former things what they were you'd think that'd be the easy one right tell us history but isn't there a, a massive divide between the evolutionist and the creationist okay tell us about how the earth began Oh, well, the geological column is a load of hogwash. You know what I'm saying? And, and now we want to have these big discussions about how things began. You know, the the uh, the whole of what humanity has said about itself, we've classified all the species according to evolution. You know, you got Peking man and Piltdown man and Cro-Magnon man. We got all this. We classify ourselves, you know, uh, declaring themselves to be wise, they become fools. We literally have classified ourselves as homo sapiens. Okay? That's literally the title, human wisdom. That's what we've named ourselves in the evolutionary chain, human wisdom. You know, 1986, we decided that was not smart enough, so we named ourselves homo sapien sapien. Human wisdom, wisdom. It's it's smarter if you say it twice right in a row, apparently. Ha declaring themselves to be wise, we've become fools. Rejecting God, his existence and his creation. You know, it's an unfortunate thing that, you know, what we so honor and venerate, we, we don't even examine often what's being said or what's being taught. You know, I say things 
that are just plain truth and people declare me a liar and so they get really angry. Like um, you've seen those magnificent pictures that the Hubble telescope has taken of, you know, like these nebulous clouds and just, I mean, just so magnificent. They're totally fake. Did you know that? That's, I'm not like making that up. NASA openly admits it. You can just type that in like images from Hubble created as character generation images by NASA. It's PR. Most of what the Hubble is take, capable of seeing is electronic signals, and then they interpret them through computer network. You know, we, we want to know, is that a pulsar out there? So we need to look at the electronic or radio signal that's coming from that star and make a determination. You show that to the public, right? You know, some oscilloscope readout, and they're going to be like, why are we paying billions of dollars for this? But if you show them a fantastic picture and photo spread, you know, by Time Magazine, oh, the Hubble Telescope and all of these, that's all done through character generation in computers and literally with airbrush on, you know, photographs. It's not real. I mean, I can see by the expression on some of your faces right now, you're like, I'm going to have to go look into that. <laughs> I did. Like, that's boggling. That's the truth of the matter. This is NASA's own admission. Right? Why? Because they're going to turn right around next year and ask for another $21 billion. And you're like, if I could just have a little more of my paycheck, I'd like to be able to pay my bills. But they're like, well, look at everything we're discovering. Wow, that's fantastic. Okay, here you go. And we shell out the cash. We honor the wisdom of men too highly. We, we think of science, right? Oh, well, you know, how old is the universe? Well, uh, one more time, class, you've heard it too many times from me already. The sun burns 120 million tons of mass a second, right? We need to get a catalytic converter on that thing or something. It's just really fuel inefficient. 120 million tons of mass a second, measurably smaller, right? If you add back... 120 million tons of mass, it's going to get bigger. You know, counting backwards the seconds, you can say, well, 100 years ago, the sun would have been this much bigger. And 1,000 years ago, it would have been this much bigger. And 10,000 years ago, it would have been this much bigger, right? You would know how much bigger the sun was if you could add back the seconds. Add back a million years of seconds, and the diameter of the sun reaches out past Uranus. This solar system wouldn't be here one million years ago. Giant star would have been too hot. None of this would have existed one million years ago. Not a billion, right? Because there's 56 billion years between dinosaurs and man, according to the evolutionary chain. And yet, 1967 Paluxy Riverbed floods, washes all the mud out of the embankment, exposes the limestone on the riverbed, and we find human footprints with dinosaur footprints on top of them. So dinosaurs stepped on human footprint afterward, right? Get the concept? Humans existed there at that mud at least one second before dinosaur. You know what I'm saying? 
simultaneously. They were existing. All of them, all of them together, running the same direction, right? Like something was coming to kill them all. I, I, giant flood or something, you know, I'm just saying. Tell us about the past. Go ahead, God says, go ahead, tell us about the past. Okay, never mind. Tell us about the future. As Jesus meets John there on the island of Patmos and delivers to him the entire revelation of Jesus Christ. And we know all that's going to happen and is currently happening around us. God is saying to all of the other religions of the world, and let's be very, very clear, no other religion in the world predicts the future. Period. End of discussion. Their followers try to reinterpret things to make it fit. You know, I mean, have you ever been around kids that have done a bad thing who are now trying to tell you some lie? To cover up. I'm not talking about your kids. I'm talking about other people's kids. Maybe you've seen this happen. You've maybe you've read about it happening. Right? And right away, it's just so absurd. Right away, you're like, do I really have to pretend that I believe this? That's that's what's going on with the other religions of the world. One, they don't, they don't declare any prophecy and any place that the followers try to make it sound like prophecy, they just sound, you can just tell, you're making this up as you go along, aren't you? They don't have any strength. They don't have any power. God is hanging his authority. Present your case, he says. Go ahead. Floor's yours, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reason. I'll just sit here and wait. I won't even interrupt you. Go ahead and declare it. You've got nothing, is his summary. Anyone who follows you is foolish. Anyone who chooses you is an abomination, the Lord says. Close the chapter out, 4125. I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come. From the rising of the sun, he shall call on my name. He shall come against princes as through mortar, as the potter treads clay, he who declares from the beginning that we may know, the former times that we may say he is righteous. Surely there is no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears your words. The first time I said to Zion, look, there they are, and I will Give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings, right? Good tidings, right? What is our whole message? The good news, right? The gospel. For I looked and there was no man. I looked among them and there was no counselor who when I asked them could answer a word. Indeed, they are all worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. That's what they are. Yeah, I, I am. I'm tired. I'm personally tired as a pastor, as a Christian, of seeing these science fiction sort of movies that the kids are all fascinated with now. 
where prophecy is being depicted in them as though it's a real thing in every quarter you know everywhere oh yeah right you know marvel comics has prophecy in it no it doesn't no no these things have not been predicted only one thing has been predicted and that's the word of god the word of God is sure. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my word will by no means disappear. The word of God alone is sharp, you know, living and active. You know, not anything else. Uh, the first time I really noticed that as something that the younger generation was being polluted by was in that whole Matrix series of movies. And they're using all these Christian terminologies. You know, Babylon and you know the Nebuchadnezzar and Trinity and prophecy and it's just permeated with biblical terminologies and both of the producers and directors and writers within that movie series are unthinkably pagan godless individuals despise Christianity and live very perverted lives the whole the whole group of people that were fascinated with that series of movies are, are enthralled with those people and follow their lives and know that about them. Godless men, right? Uh, Psalm 1, again, happy, content, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. If you know their character of behavior, don't listen to them. On any level, the truth of God's word, he hangs it on prophecy, right? There's a movement now within Christianity of, oh, prophecy. All these old preachers just always want to talk about prophecy. Yeah, because God does. God wants to talk about prophecy. He hangs his credentials right on prophecy and says, present your case. You think you got something to declare? Go ahead. Because I've declared the beginning from the end. I am the beginning and the end. That's why he can declare it to us. So be encouraged. The Lord is challenging us about the things that might befall us, but it's so that he can free us from them. Amen? Amen. We'll pick up at chapter 42 next week. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, thank you so much for your strong declaration, the challenge against any other thing that would try to pull us away from your word and your truth. Help us to be men and women that are surrendered to you, that we would see your kingdom come and your will be done in us and through us. Lord, we, we want to be children surrendered to you. We want to follow your will for our lives. Give us the strength of your spirit. Show us your will. Show us your way that we could follow it and be fruitful to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. As always, uh, please stay and fellowship as long as you would like.